Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton and Emily Jane Fox. Emily Jane Fox is in the house. <laughs> Can't get rid of me. I cannot get rid of you. You're actually here in Los Angeles live. You know who's here today? Who? Pete Buttigieg. He's not coming on the show, but he's in LA. You just teased everybody. I totally just, uh, we do have two guests on the show this week. Uh, one is the wonderful, brilliant, unbelievably talented Emily Jane Fox. And then we also have another incredibly talented person, D.A. Wallach who will be joining me after Emily. He is actually coming on the show to argue with me about everything I talk about on here. So it's actually quite a fun conversation. We're going to talk about consumerism, capitalism, technology, why we're here on this planet, which is my favorite topic, of course. And I think we may have answered it today, so stick around. But first, Mueller, Mueller. 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 I know, I just like doing the... I was going to ask you to rank your two guests, but then I just heard your description of, of your other conversation, and I don't want to know the answer anymore. Sounds like a very good podcast. It's going to be a great podcast. You should listen. After you leave... What do you think I'm going to do the rest of Stick around yeah. and listen on s- the slow channel. How You know when people speed podcasts up? You should slow it down and just be there in the moment. I'm all about being unefficient. Inefficient. Okay. <laughs> unefficient. <laughs> all right, so... Uh, Emily's going to talk to us for for a few minutes here about uh, the news this week um, because I have a lot of questions about it. So uh, Mueller yesterday on Capitol Hill, uh, total, just like, it was like a birthday party that no one showed up to. Here's what I will say. Okay. And I'm annoyed at your characterization and I'm annoyed at everybody's characterization of what happened yesterday. Love annoying. Everything about it is annoying to me. So everyone went into this expecting this to be this big television moment, an exciting, dramatic reading of a very boring yet very important 440-something page report. Everyone thought Mueller was going to come in and be this white knight who saved us from this terrible nightmare. It was not exciting television. No. I don't care if it was exciting television. That is our Trumpified view of the world, that we need everything to be this 
television Super Bowl moment where everyone's jaws on the floor, like a Comey testimony, for example, where he dropped all these bombs and everyone thought, this is great TV. This is, we don't live in a, in a reality show. This is real life. This is we democracy. We do live in a reality we show. We don't need to live in a reality <laughs> show. These are our own preconceived notions it's about true. what we need for people to pay attention. Yesterday was spectacular, if spectacularly boring, but it was spectacular because we got a couple of really important things out of Mueller yesterday. Now, he may have delivered them in a very boring, kind of dopey way. Hence my Mueller. Exactly. Uh, There, I get it now. I support it. I support it. Okay. So, he said that, he said in, in plain English that he did not exonerate the president, which is something that the president has been saying on repeat since the report came out. Yes, but he also didn't say, like, the guy's fucking guilty. We should put him in the slammer. And, and but he, he, he could said, have said he that. He did say that the president can be prosecuted once he leaves office, which was another spectacular thing to hear him say. Good point. He said it was basically disgraceful what the president did in encouraging WikiLeaks to hack people's emails. And I thought he confirmed all of the withering things that were in that 448-page report. Now, he didn't do it in dramatic fashion. He wouldn't take the Democrats' bait where they were trying to get him to read some of the juicier moments of that report so they could have that soundbite. But what I think, where I think Bob Mueller failed to be this white knight saving us from our Trumpian nightmare, what he did prove was that Trump's a bad guy. Right? So Bob Mueller may not have been the hero, but he very clearly articulated how Trump's the villain. Do you think that he is, I mean, he has more power to sway public opinion than probably anyone? I disagree. You don't think so? No, because the people who have been listening to Trump for the last two years will always see him as a partisan hack who leads the 18 angry Democrats. The people who saw Bob Mueller as a saint listened to him perhaps substantively, were maybe a little bit disappointed that he didn't ride in on that horse and save everybody. So I don't think he has the power to change anybody. Everyone's minds are already locked. What I think is really important, I really hope that Democrats do for the next however many months until the election. Please listen. And hi. Uh, I think that I want there to be a steady drumbeat on Capitol Hill every single week where there is a witness who is testifying to the ways in which the president has broke the law, shattered norms, participated in criminal activity, gone against the emoluments clause in the Constitution, bring up every way in which he is a crook, he is uh, a criminal, in which he is going against the norms, going against democracy as we know it. And if you have that steady drumbeat, it doesn't have to be the most dramatic hearing, but it keeps in the consciousness all the things that Bob Mueller reminded us of yesterday. But so let me ask you a question. Isn't, the, isn't there nothing left to drum now that we've had him up at Capitol I mean, Hill? it doesn't have to be new. Got it. Just keep it in the consciousness. And so, okay, so, so l- last question on this topic, because I, I have a couple of other things I want to get to in our brief time together here. Do you think that this will lead to any more, uh, any inkling of impeachment hearings? I think that had it been that dramatic moment where it was new information, spectacularly told, and started to feel like it convinced more of the American public that this was real and an imminent danger, you would have heard maybe Pelosi change her rhetoric. I think that this... 
fed into the way that Democrats on Capitol Hill already see the president. I don't think this made it any more urgent or imminent. And so I don't think that this gets us closer to impeachment. I think this keeps us on the steady, slow track that we've been on. Okay. And so do you think that we, if you kind of have to predict, and I know we, we're making the stuff up as we're going mm-hmm. along here, quite literally, uh, do you think <laughs> that that you will see something happen with that steady drumbeat that will lead Pelosi to finally be like, you know what? Let's bring the impeachment hearings. Probably not. You don't think it's going to happen? No, I mean, I think we know what we're going to know about Trump and Russia and obstruction. I think that if we were going to have a fast-paced, quick-moving, swift impeachment process, it would have happened by now. I think you'll continue to hear witnesses called on Capitol Hill. At this point... I think it's it would have been an important step just so people n- knew that they couldn't get away with this to perhaps impeach the president, especially over the obstruction stuff. At this point, the hearings are going to go past 2020, so I think attention may be better spent on bringing witnesses, continually keeping this in the American consciousness, focusing on the economy and the ways in which the president is failing the people that he thought, uh, who, who he tried to sell his economic vision to, and just reminding the people that he is a crook, a criminal, someone who tried to obstruct justice and isn't even helping your pocketbook while he's doing all of that. It's true. Well, that's a that's a, a good uh, campaign line that we will uh, play on repeat Hire now. Hire me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So next question I have for you. Um, you were at the trial for Epstein? Or the, the, the arraignment hear- hearing. The, or the arraignment. Yeah. Tell us what that was like. Oof. So give us, so, uh, just also this week, uh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein tried to commit suicide in jail. So there's, there's that. I do not but, want that to be how this ends. Yes. For a million reasons. I'm sure there's a lot of people that do not want this to be how this Justice ends. Justice should be served. Okay. So I love a courtroom. I love reporting from court. It's my favorite thing to do as a reporter. Why? Have you ever reported from I have court reported before? From court. Do you not really love fun. it? I do love it. The problem, the thing I don't like about it is that they make you, they take your phone, and you're kind of at the whim of the the court officers, and also the food in the courthouse is is not that Ooh, great. It's time for the food. Let go, let God. Like you have no phone, you have no ability to know what time it is, you have no ability to know when things start. You don't know if you're going to get in the room. I love it for a couple of reasons. One of them is it's very competitive. And I'm very competitive. So you have to get there super early. You have to give them your phone. You have to wait in line. There are a million reporters waiting to get in the room. And I love, I feed off of that competitive energy. So I got there really early. I think I was the 10th person there. You, of course, don't love the food, but keep going, keep going. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've even ever seen food in the courthouse because <laughs> I'm really very bad. focused. So, okay, so I love a courthouse scene. I got in the room. I was in... The second row. Mm-hmm. And... Have you met him before? Have you seen no, him before? Never. No, I've never seen him in person before. This okay. is what I will say. When he walked in the courtroom, I have never in my life felt such evil energy. In oh, really? Now, wow. I don't know if it's because I know what he's alleged of doing or if he just has really evil energy about him. I've only felt that with one person. I'll tell you off the podcast who that was because <laughs> it's someone who's in the current Donald news environment. Trump. No. no. Um, I, well, the thing that's like, it, I, I haven't met him. I don't think I've met him at least. Um, but the when you think, when you hear the stories about like the island and the young girls, like you've got to be a really evil, fucked up person to do that. Just wait. Okay. So the hearing... It's fascinating for a number of reasons. So one of the reasons I found interesting was you have 
this is the way the courtroom set up. You have the judge at the front of the room, and then you have the prosecutors, the defense, and then the general public, right? So here is the line. You have Maureen Comey, who's a prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. If that name sounds familiar, it's because she's James Comey's daughter. Hmm. So you have Maureen Comey. Directly behind Maureen Comey is Epstein. Directly behind him is Jeffrey Berman, who is the head of the SDNY, a Trump appointee, but a well-known man. Uh, and directly behind him, you have David Boyce, wow. who is the yep. famed, infamous attorney who's been going up against Epstein, representing women who have alleged uh, that they were, as children, abused by Jeffrey Epstein. So it was just quite a straight oh, line of, of yeah, people, yeah, yeah. straight back. So at the end of this very long hearing in which Epstein's attorneys were trying to argue that he should be given bail, but by bail I mean he would be essentially creating a private prison in his mansion. Yep. And the reason, the justifications were insane. The, the logic was... Um, will create this private prison in his mansion. And the prosecutors were like, if you need to create a private prison in order to ensure that the community is safe, he should be in prison, yeah. which is a pretty good <laughs> argument. Then his attorney said, well, Madoff was given bail and he didn't flee. So using Madoff as an example, it's like, it's or, or comparing your client to Madoff, maybe the first time it's ever been used in a court of law, not a great way to do it anyway he was denied bail but these these two women who uh alleged that they were uh abused as children when one was 14 one was 16 they said that um epstein had sex with them uh they got up and what i thought was one of the most chilling things i've ever seen was he just stared at them epstein just stared at the women as they talked about why they felt he would be a danger to, to society if he were released now they couldn't see him because they were slightly in front of him but he just stared at them. And I'd never seen anything like that in court. Wow. Usually when people are testifying against you or speaking against you, like the, the defense looks straight ahead or at their fingers or something. But he just looked at them. He just looked at them. And it made me feel like this is evil. Um, do you think that uh, you think he'll ever get out or you think he'll, he'll just rot in jail forever? I mean, that's the hope, right? I don't see how you get out of this. Even I with hope all the money in the world, which he has. You're, it's it's post-money at it. this point. I think, I think, obviously, what we saw 10 years ago which was money. Unbelievable it's, that he pulled that off. It's despicable and it's disgusting. I think we're post-money at this point. I think the money almost makes it more likely that justice will be served here because <laughs> it was so wrong what happened a decade ago all right so uh two last things uh that i want to get to one is uh michael cohen your best yeah. friend uh how's he doing my best friend um michael is in prison and he was watching the Mueller hearings yesterday hang on i'm pulling up the statement that he sent me from he, federal prison he texted you he texted me a statement from prison yesterday oh, very exciting his name was invoked a million times yesterday in the hearing because they were congress people were asking Mueller about the ways in which Trump potentially has obstructed justice and witness tampering and a lot of the things that he testified to about the Trump-Moscow project, et cetera, et cetera. So the statement was, quote, Mueller today had the world stage to answer questions regarding obstruction of justice and witness tampering. Sadly, his reluctance just continues to leave the debate open and those responsible free from prosecution for the moment. The dun, American dun, dun. people deserve more. Was, is he referencing Donald 
Trump? Yeah, I think that that uh, the search warrant application was unredacted and released to the public, I think, last week. And it revealed that, um, obviously, the president had directed him to make those payments to women who had alleged affairs with him, that he had spoken about it over text message with Hope Hicks, and that Hope Hicks had, had called him before and after these payments, and after the storm, uh, the Access Hollywood tape was released, uh, Hope Hicks had testified under oath that she didn't know about these payments ahead of time. These text messages make it very hard to understand how she could have made that statement so, under oath. So here's the question. So Cohen's in jail, right? For three years. For three years. And what no one else is getting in trouble. They close the investigation. That's it's like, okay, that's a little fucked up, honestly. I'm sorry for all the cursing today. I'm a little angry. But Sorry, but, Mom. But uh, you... Uh, what, uh, it is. It is wild. Look, Michael Cohen broke the law. So did Hope Hicks. He pleaded guilty. So did guilty Donald J. Trump to... Jr. And, and and the president. Yes. Right. The president. The prosecutors have stated unequivocally that this was at the direction of President Trump. Michael Cohen committed some of the crimes that he pleaded guilty to, not all of them, but some of them, at the direction of the president. That Hope Hicks knew about this, that Don Jr. signed the checks to reimburse Cohen for these, that no one else is being held accountable is one of the most Why incomprehensible do things. Is? I don't know. I, I have not been able to get a straight answer. Cohen doesn't really have an answer. Uh, it makes no sense to me. I understand s- that if, you, if you're not going to charge the president, obviously we heard a million times yesterday from Mueller that you don't charge a seating president, right? But there are a lot of other people. Why was Alan Weisselberg, the Trump, the longtime Trump org CFO, given immunity to go after Cohen? Cohen's not the big fish there. Weisselberg is the big fish. Cohen's the, the guppy in the pond. So do you think that there's a world in which after Trump is out of office in 2056 that he, that was a joke, um, was it? Oh God, hopefully. Uh, after he's out of office, eventually, whenever that happens, that he is prosecuted? It depends on the statute of limitations. Okay. So I don't know what the statute is on campaign finance crimes. Look, a lot of people don't get prosecuted for campaign finance crimes. They just pay a fine, right? That Cohen's going to prison in part because of that is unusual. Do, is there a world where Don Jr. or Hope Hicks... No, they close the investigation. But can't they reopen it because they lied? Or it's done? I think it's done. I mean, Congress could could do something to hope for lying. But Congress's response last week is baffling to me. And it's sort of sexist and sort of incomprehensible to me. They, they gave her the chance to reword her testimony. Why? Because it's very clear that she lied under oath. But, but why, why give her the Because chance? they have been treating her like a damsel in distress. This is someone who is a 30-year-old woman who was head of the communications at, at the White House, who now is running communications for a major public company. But, oh, Hopi is... is it makes me so angry. It's, it's honestly offensive. It's funny to me. The Senate Judiciary Committee, after Cohen's testimony to Congress in February... Uh, subpoenaed documents from about 70 people, including Jared Kushner, both Trump's sons, Trump Organization, Tom Barrack, a million bajillion people, right? Ivanka Trump was not on that list. Now, Congress members 
said, we didn't need her and maybe she'll come down the road. And some of the chatter was, it would anger Trump too much to have her on that list. What? But it is just so sexist to me that the so two people you, who are treated with kid gloves are Ivanka Trump and Hope Hicks, like these that, pretty women. Okay, so so you said before, and I've always wondered how this would play out, but the Me Too movement has help bring down a lot of very, very, very bad men. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought, oh, well, there is going to be some sort of repercussion on the other side that will affect something. I didn't know what it was or whatever. Is part of it maybe that um, because, you know, you mentioned earlier Epstein got away with 10 years ago what he got away with that he can't today, and it's because of the world we live in today, is part of the the negative response to this that that women like Hope and Ivanka that have done terrible things will get away with what they've gotten away with because no one wants to go after a woman in this climate? No. I think that uh, it's it's still backwards. It's not this is not a forward looking thing that they're not going after these women. I think it's still a backwards looking what do thing. You mean? That uh, people aren't treating Ivanka and Hope like equals. They're treating them as these little girls. Got it. They're treating them I with kid gloves. So it's exactly the way it was. Exactly. It's well, Hope is such a pretty young woman. Ivanka is such a pretty young woman, and Trump would freak out if you touch one of his pretty young women. So we're not going to poke got the it. bear got it, got by it. going after one of his girls. Huh. But really, these are very capable women who hold very senior roles in it, the most senior portion of our government. But we can't go after them. Let's let them amend their testimony. We're not going to subpoena Ivanka. That's so much. We got a brother and her husbands. We don't need to anger Trump by getting her. All right. So last question, and then we'll let you go, and I'll go drink a glass of whiskey um, at, at 9 a.m. in the morning. Appropriate. Uh, just kidding. I don't do that. Wait till 1030. <laughs> uh, like a civilized like human. Like a civilized yeah. human being. So last week there was a report in the New York Times um, that they looked at all the data, the polling data, and so on and so forth, about... Um, uh, 2020. And the thing that they came up with was that it looks like, and I'm going to, I'm going to say something after this before I, I'm going to say this first and then something after. So just to kind of put a little cold water on this, it looks like Trump will probably win, according to the Times research, uh, more uh, votes in, especially in the Electoral College than in 2020 than he did in 2016. I will say before we kind of run for the hills and move to Canada, uh, that we don't, first of all, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, anything could change between then and now. And second of all, like the New York Times data people really royally screwed it up in 2016. And so we should take it with a little bit of a, you know, a little salt on it. But that being said, there is a chance that it's right. And my question for you is, do you think, like right now we're witnessing uh, the Democratic Party, there's a lot of infighting. Uh, I think the way Nancy Pelosi has been acting, I personally think is terrible. Like, she should be above it all, and she should be the one that's bringing it all together, rather than going and having lunch with Maureen Dowd and complaining about some some young women that, that are in the, uh, the party. But it seems like they're all, like, everyone's fighting with each other, Kamala and Biden and this person and that person. And, like, is there, is it going to, are they going to screw themselves up and, the, and, and, kind of just hand this thing to him? I think primary infighting is usual. What's going on with this so-called squad is ridiculous. Part of it is a media creation. Part of it is a Trump creation. 
And then part of it is people just behaving like children. And I think there needs to be one common goal and there can be disagreements on policy things, which is great. It's healthy. That's democracy. We want that. But the common goal should be uniting to have a Democrat in the White House in 2020. And any other little squirmish that comes up, policy difference, can be handled like adults in a civilized fashion. Otherwise, things are going to devolve into kind of what we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks. I think everyone just needs to take a breath. Thank you for that demonstration. And say, we have bigger matters at hand here. Do you think they will? Yeah. I've been really kind of, I've been very unimpressed with the way Nancy Pelosi handled this, honestly. It's funny. I feel like she is such a polarizing people. Half the people I talk to feel like you and probably a lot more... Uh, negative towards her. I, I'm I'm holding myself back. Okay, right now, so you honestly. fall into that negative camp, and then half the people are like, "She is a master. She is handling this so well." Here's what I think Nancy Pelosi does really well. I think Nancy Pelosi knows how to handle Trump better than anybody. When she handles him, she is a master. Totally agree with that. Within her own party is where she struggles. Yeah, I think that, look, I think that the reality is, is that you have, we can take the squad, for example, and they are um, four young women uh, who have who have all experienced things that, because they are of color, that Nancy Pelosi has never experienced, probably, mm-hmm. definitely, uh, and that they they kind of see the world differently. And I don't think that she gets that. She sees it as like a power thing with the old and the new and this, that, and the other. And what pissed me off the most about the whole debacle was that she chose to go after them publicly the way she did. Um, I just thought that was, I thought it was just wrong. I think it's like, sure, she can disagree with them. She may not like the fact that they're on Twitter and tweeting the things that they do or whatever it is, or saying the things they do or having the viewpoints. But like, you've been doing this long enough that you should, and it, for me, it, it points to another example of why I cannot. I, I pray and I hope that Biden isn't the person going up against Trump. Like, let's get rid of these old people that have been doing this for fifty years and have completely fucked it up, and put in some young people that have a different viewpoint and are like, "Hey, you know what? I have an idea. Maybe it's not the right idea, but let's give it a shot." So Sam Numberg, you know Sam Numberg, yeah. who worked at the Trump Organization on the campaign. I think he is. Very smart in how he sees the Trump world. Uh, and we talked yesterday after the Mueller hearing, and he said to me, um, I hope it's okay that I say this, Sam. Uh, he, <laughs> he said to me, I hope the Democrats saw today that they cannot put Biden up because he just, today shows you what it's like to put an old man up against Trump, and it's not going to work. No, it's not going to work. And I thought it was an astute point. Yeah, I think that you, the only, like, I keep going back to Buttigieg and I, you know, and people like Kamala and so on. Um, and, uh, and I, and I keep thinking Trump knows how to fight with the older people that he's been fighting with for a long time, except for Nan- Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. And she's very good at what she does in that respect. Um, he will wipe the floor with a Biden, with a Sanders. He'll, he'll win. It's like a boxing match and, and he's been, bo- he's a better Harris boxer. Out. I think Harris I I think Warren I I the only thing with Warren is I don't know if she's too far left for the people in the middle. She's polling in a crazy way. Yeah, and I totally and I think I think Buttigieg and I think that it's going to come down to those three at the end. Um, and uh, I hope that it's two of them that are on the same ticket. And um, and I think that that's the chance that you have to win. If you make this a torches blazing, income inequality. 
economic showdown between Warren and Trump, you will have a very interesting election cycle. Completely. Yep. There you have it. Well, with that, so do you actually, I have a question for you. Do you want to know why we're here on this earth and in this universe? That's all I want to know. Well, then stick around because our next guest doesn't have the answer. I'm here for but it. But I have some answers. Great. It's a, good, it's a good show. Thank you so much, EJF, as always. My pleasure. All right. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hi, I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, along with Michael Calore. Each week on Gadget Lab, we tackle the biggest questions in the world of technology with reporters from inside the Wired newsroom. We cover everything from personal tech. Because asking people to put a computer on one of the most personal and sensitive parts of your body is just like, it's a big bet. Broader trends in Silicon Valley. There are just so many laid off workers out there that workers just don't have a lot of power. And the exciting and terrifying world of AI. It's inevitable that the internet is going to be filled with like AI generated nonsense. And so he just thinks he might as well make some money playing a small part in a thing that he sees as unstoppable. Wired's Gadget Lab is here to keep you informed and to keep it real. The entire point of the phone should be on some level to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) New episodes of Gadget Lab are available weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard about Mint Mobile? Do you know what it's all about? Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those savings right on to you. I've been using Mint Mobile for weeks and I've been impressed both by the quality and by the price. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can choose from three, six, or 12-month plans and say goodbye to a monthly phone bill. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com hive. That's mintmobile.com slash H-I-V-E. Cut your monthly wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash hive. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan. A hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Ready? Sure am. Okay. Do you want to, since this is your podcast this week, would you like to say welcome to Inside the Hive? Oh, welcome to Inside the Hive. And you're my... I'm I'm your host, D.A. Wallach, not Nick Bilton today. I've taken over. So, D.A. Wallach, who came on the show about a year and a half ago, is a good friend of mine and has a lot of very different viewpoints on a lot of topics that we cover here. 
And we ended up uh, bumping into each other at uh, a co-working space. And he, uh, you, what did you say? You said, I'm coming on your podcast. I mean, and don't I'm- degrade it. It's not a co-working space. This is a, this is an elitist. Um, <laughs> you know, this is- <laughs> All right. Before we get to the elitist, we ended up bumping into each other. And DA said, you know what? I'm going to come on your podcast and interview you. That's right. And prove you wrong? No. I mean, what I wanted to do today, hopefully was psychoanalyze you. I mean, I, I, oh. I really, I want to Oh, I didn't realize that's what I, this Well, was. I just perceive in one of the engines of our conversations as friends being various tensions that exist within your personality and probably within mine as well. Great. Um, we're both quite neurotic, <laughs> you know, approaching middle-aged guys. I, I, mean, I, I think know, I'm I, actually middle-aged. You're not truly middle-aged. I mean, I would define middle, middle-aged as like, you know, mid fifties. Is this our first argument? Mid fifties. Oh, okay. So I'm I'm like lower middle aged, forty three. Okay, and I'm I'm thirty four. Okay. So but, like, we're, but we're like we're we're I could be your father. We're peaking. <laughs> we're we're physically and um, okay, socially on, peaking on, right on. now. Yes, yes. It's yes. all downhill from here, and you know, in particular, yeah. Before we go to where you're going to go, okay. okay, let's just tell people who you are <laughs> okay. so they know. So you're D.A. Wallach. You were, do you, you want to do it? You want me yeah, to do I'm, it? Yeah, I'm D.A. Wallach. I was a professional rock musician for many years. After college, got a record deal, which is what brought me out to California. And after years of living in a bus with eight other men doing rock shows, I retired from music, became a technology investor, and more recently have become a biotechnology-focused investor. But I have a, a weird LA lifestyle that combines music, intellectual pursuits, and investing in biotech companies. Okay, great. Now that we've got that out of the way, let's do it. Come on, bring it on. Well, so the 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 first tension that I want to sort of get at is that on the one hand, you are an incredibly critical person towards I thought you were going to say beautiful but beautiful yeah I agree that's obvious but you you have an acute awareness of the excesses of contemporary society and culture okay and yet you yourself like many of us are also drawn to consumerism we, we've had a lot of conversations that I would regard as aesthetic conversations, but also consumer conversations about the merits of various cars or coffee makers or other objects. Okay. And I'm interested in You're- how you see these two forces in your personality. Oh, wait, the consumerism versus... The consumerism versus the uh, criticality. Well, but I'm critical of... I'm critical of... Of, of companies and actions of people, not necessarily critical of consumerism. I mean, I think that, that we, it's, it's interesting. So I, I, we all have things that we're interested in. I was, I was at a, a camera store the other day. I've always been into photography <laughs> and I have it. So it was yeah. like my passion in, in high school. I had a Pentax K1000. I remember the first time I, I uh, stood over the the light box and put some jewelry on it, and we, you know, saw the contrast of the black and white on on a piece of paper. That was like it was an amazing moment to me. And 
And I, I was standing there and I was looking at a, a lens that I, I wanted to get for some, some like night photography I was going to do. Anyway, besides the point. And the guy says to me, he goes, what are your other like hobbies? What are the other things you're interested in? And it was, it was this moment where I was like, oh, it's so fascinating. We all kind of have like three or four things that we like. And for me, you just kind of mentioned them. Like, I like old cars. I like coffee machines and coffee and cameras and things like that. I don't think that makes me someone who cannot be critical of companies or CEOs or something like that if I like those objects. Well, maybe it's consistent because a lot of your critical work as a journalist yeah. or as a commentator is about new technology. And and yet, yes. all of these things in some ways are, are old technologies that you are really drawn to. Okay, well, are, you, are you drawn to them for the aesthetic of the old technology, or do you think there was something about old technology that was somehow different from new technology that, that attracts yes. you to it? Yes. Okay. I will tell you what it is. It's that it's slower. And, and you know, you it's funny. You just sat down in my office, and behind me there's some books that I've written and some framed photos and things like that. And you just said, I live in the future, and here's how it works. And that was my first book. I wrote it 10 years ago, and no one should read it. I will just put that out there. But it was this, like, glowing look at the future, and it was this prediction that social media was – before social media, people were using it, that it was going to have this amazing effect on the world that um, – driverless cars and virtual reality, all these things were going to be incredible. There's actually chapter two of the book is about the porn industry and how that would be at the forefront of VR, proving to be true. <laughs> Not that I've ever experienced it. But I think that the, the, the reality is that if you look at these old technologies, they were adopted slower. They, they act slower. They, they make you think a little bit in a way that new technologies don't. So, and for example, like if you look at the adoption rate of the television, it was 100 years before every home had one. And if you look at the adoption rate of the smartphone, it was a few years. And the adoption rate of like an app like FaceApp or something like that, it's days. It's hours sometimes. It's like... You know, I, I remember I interviewed um, uh, Evan Spiegel, uh, who created Snapchat and it, for uh, when I was at the New York Times, and he had just that morning, it was like an 11 o'clock interview uh, on stage, and just that morning they had released a new product. It was a, a new set of like uh, some filters or something like that, and they hadn't put out an announcement about it. And I said to him, how do, you, how do you get these things out without putting out an announcement? He said, well, we, the community sees it to themselves, and that's the beauty of it. That's what makes it fun. And I said, well, what percentage of the community of your 300 million users at the time have used it? And he said, like, 90% already. And wow. this was, like, in a matter of, like, two hours. And, and I think that that's an example of, like, it goes to the big problem with technology that I have today is it all happens so quickly. And when things happen quickly you break things, and it's not necessarily a good thing. Does that answer the question? Well, do you think there was something different about the people and the intention behind, uh, you know, a beautiful Porsche from the 70s? Or, I mean, the, it strikes me that technology businesses, be it a car company or a coffee maker company, always have a alliance between the tinkery nerds who just want to do the art kind of project or they just want to do the engineering project and then the money people who got to figure out how do, how do we sell this thing how do we get people to use it how do we keep the lights on and do, do you perceive that 
you know, one or the other has sort of gotten more power because if you yes. think about the, the Zuckerbergs, the Larry Pages, I mean, these are bona fide computer scientists themselves who have ended up in these positions of power. Well, I think that there's two things to that question. The first is that you re- mentioned uh, Porsche, right? There are Porsches from the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s that literally have a million miles on them, on their engines, right? And that was because they built these things, which is partially why those old cars are so coveted. They built these things without obsolescence, right? There is no one I know that has an iPhone 1. It, it's not, it, it is not designed to think about the consumer in the respect of the consumer's best interests. I mean, like, look at everyone loves Apple. It's a great company. The fact that they charge 40 or $50 for an iPhone case that costs them mere pennies to make, like... And this is the one of the richest companies in the world. I think is fucking disgusting, honestly. I, I think. But that- didn't we just? I mean, just to push back on that, like I have a MacBook Pro or yep. MacBook Air or whatever that's five years old. Yep. I see no reason to get a new one because it, it feels to me like that tech asymptoted then, or maybe it, even a couple of years before it. You know, the phones right now. You know, I, I'm feeling less of an impulse to buy a new one every two years when, you know, maybe five, six years ago, it was like you were in the dark ages if you didn't upgrade every two years, if you could afford to. And so, you know, is it just that we have lived over the past decade through this rapid explosion of innovation in these areas where, you know, the products did evolve very, very rapidly, but maybe now they're they're kind of starting plateau. to plateau. I yeah. think, yeah, I think they are starting to plateau. I think, I mean, you as an investor know this as well as anyone. Like, one of the things I hear from a lot of venture capitalists is that they they're having trouble investing in things because they don't know the next thing is not here yet. The technology to create the next thing isn't here yet. You know, driverless cars and genomics and all these different things, and so they're they're kind of in this this no man's land. But I do think that. You know, going back to Apple and Facebook and these companies, like, I think that they truly take advantage of consumers. And I'm not sure, look, I'm not an expert on, like, the CEO of Porsche in the 1970s, if you did the same thing, or, like, Mercedes or whatever. Um, I'm sure that there were bad people and there were good people. But I feel like predominantly the people in the tech world who are running it are not thinking about the consumer, first of all. And are um, not owning owning up to their screw ups and massive massive screw ups, um, and that they don't feel like they have a responsibility. And you know, it's like it's it's so interesting. I remember when we had this conversation um, when we bumped into each other, and and I pulled out my phone and I held it up and I said to you, you know, at the end of the day. When you think about it, like we're, we spend, we all spend, you know, you can look at your screen times, four, four, five, six, seven hours on your device every single day. Uh, And it's like a war to try to not use it as much as you do. But at the end of the day, is our life really that much better because of this device? I, I, I took photos before I had this and I probably took them more carefully and thoughtfully and the photos probably meant more. I, I, um, sent people emails even if before emails you know there's there was other forms of communication i spoke on the phone there was instant things with faxes there's all these things that the technologies that had these massive shifts in the universe that we are reliant upon uh but i don't necessarily know if the iphone and the and smartphones have been that great for society do you i mean it's it's unclear i mean there's so many ways to skin that cat like 
you know, everyone being on all the time, uh, a company being defined today by a group of people that communicate 24 seven, I presume is in some measures much more productive. I mean, just the fact that people are working presumably longer hours because they're responding to emails all night until they go to sleep in some ways suggests that. Now, you know, I, I take the point that if you're just sort of playing candy crush to kill time, that's a less enriching activity than what you would have done to kill boredom in the past. But I, I think it's too soon to say. I mean, the one thing that's clear out of all of it for putting aside what's happened in our politics as a result of social media and everything is this teen suicide rate, mm -hmm. you know, explosion. Now it's unclear that there's a single cause and, you know, easy to say, Oh, it's Facebook or something that may not be true. I mean, a lot is changing all at once, but something has happened in the past decade where a lot more teenagers are killing themselves. And that would seem to reflect um, some pretty significant wrong turn that we've taken. So here's my question. Do you believe if, the, let's just say, let's just say hypothetically that a report just came out today that said that teenagers are killing themselves because they, um, uh, because of social media in one respect or another, right? Do you think that these companies should have a responsibility to try to figure out how to stop that from happening? Absolutely. I mean, you know, if you, oh, okay, so I mean, agree. cigarette companies did, you know, and I think the fact that their products also do lots of good things is what makes it hard. You know, my 93 year old father-in-law who has children who live in multiple countries goes on Facebook to see what's going on with them. In some ways, this is a guy who, you know, 20 years ago would have been miserably lonely and bored sitting in his house, probably aging faster. And yet the level of connectivity that he feels to what's going on in the news, to people he knows, to his family, to my life, to my wife's life, um, is really facilitated by Facebook in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it strikes me that these technologies have produced uh, potentially a lot of good and a lot of bad. And the, the challenge is how do, you, how do you not throw the baby out with the bathwater? Or, or maybe we just press pause and I think, you know, one of the challenges to go back to the car thing by comparison, like, you know, the, the Porsche in the 60s or 70s, there almost used to be in product design an aspiration to write the final word on something. What do you mean? You know, this is, I'm going to design the best car ever. Mm. You know, the uh, Charles and Ray Ames or Eames or however you say it, you know, I... A couple of years ago, when we bought a house, which you heard a lot of my neuroses about, went and sat, I literally sat in hundreds of dining room chairs. One, one of the negative prices I've paid for tech has been chronic neck pain because I'm at a computer so, so much. And so I really wanted dining room chairs that I could sit comfortably in for hours having a really good dinner party. And, you know, you're hard pressed to find more comfortable dining room chairs than those that were designed in the 60s. I mean, remarkable to me that with all of our modeling and technology and materials, dining room chair comfort is something that is frozen in time. And similarly, you know, it's hard to find a car that's more beautiful than that old Porsche. Those designers were trying to do the best thing ever, and they wanted to write the final word on that, on that idea. These were like platonic goods that they were creating. And by contrast, 
you know, the, the folks who have created these internet products explicitly have a mindset of, you know, move fast and break things. It's never perfect. Put it out there, see what the world does with it. You know, maybe in a certain way, what we're asking for is more paternalism on the part of these designers. But you, so you once said to me that, uh, what, what's your analogy with it, uh, with buying things where you said that there are, there's like something in the world and you have to find it. What was the story you told me? Yeah. My theory was that, you know, you, you don't need, you shouldn't, unless you're really consumer sick, you shouldn't buy nearly as much stuff as most people do. Um, certainly as much as I have over time because, and I know because I've thrown out a lot of it. Right. So those were all mistakes in a certain sense. And, so my idea, particularly for shopping for clothes, was as a thought experiment, imagine that a number of things have been custom made for you, and then they've been hidden in stores around the world. And so shopping should be like a scavenger hunt for these items that are, are clearly bespoke to you, not you know looking to, to compromise. You, know, you should never buy something unless it's truly everything you've wished for in a pair of pants. Anytime you hedge, you end up regretting it, you throw that out, you know, it goes to goodwill. So do you think, so when you look at the world that that was frozen in time in the 60s where they really did care about the products, I mean, it's it's interesting you say that because I'm a, I love cooking, as you know. Yeah. And my favorite cooking utensils and things are things that were designed decades ago. The, like the La Creuset pot that you can make a stew in or the cast iron pans, things like that. Those are the only things I use. And, uh, and it feels like all these gadgets that come along, like your, your sous vide and your this, that, and the other, you use them for like a few weeks and you're like, eh, I'm not really, it doesn't make any sense. And I, I feel like the, it's like, again, it's like, it goes back to this, this problem with the speed of which technology is made and adopted. And, you know, and I feel like, I do. If I could do anything, I would be to press the pause button. Right. Right. Is that wrong? Do you think? Or, well, I I don't know that it's wrong. I mean, the challenge with pressing the pause button is that whatever positive outcomes are being generated in all this innovation would be the casualty. You know, and again, it's like you'd be throwing the baby out with bathwater. You know, you don't you don't want the teen suicide problem, but you do want people. Um, who have been politically disenfranchised to have a voice. And, you know, part of the challenge in the, uh, let's call it left um, immune response to Trump is that there's been an inability for people to imagine that maybe this is what democracy in America looks like. Hmm. You know, maybe what we saw with, with Trump's election or with the Tea Party is actually a large number of disenfranchised people being given a political voice and doing with that voice something that a number of us find despicable. But it, almost the preoccupation with Russian hacking or with these sort of conspiratorial explanations is almost a liberal evasion of this other explanation I'm proposing, which is that, you know, d- democracy is sort of unbiased around outcomes. It's the idea is you let a group of people vote on something and you, you have to admit the possibility that they're going to vote for stuff that may be stupid. No, that's such a really smart point. I think it's like we, we, 
we spend so much time thinking like, oh, this all went wrong, and maybe it went the way it was supposed to go? Well, or maybe not the way it was supposed to go, but maybe the way that the majority wanted it to go. I mean, by definition, you know, you can, you can, again, you can point to the electoral colleges broken and the, there was, you know, disinformation on Facebook and whatever. But I remember one time during the George W. Bush administration, and I was a, a sophomore in college, and I went on a vacation to the Caribbean on, in between semesters. And I'm in the line for, for immigration. And it turned out the island I was going to, Justice Stephen Breyer of the U.S. Supreme Court, has been visiting and has a house on. And he's been going there for decades. And I end up in the immigration line next to Justice Breyer. <laughs> and so I get to talk to this Supreme Court justice. And he said to me, you know, you're a college kid, what's the climate like on your campus? And I said, well, you know, it's the midst of the, I think it was at the time, the uh, 2000, uh, 2004 election. And people are just really, fr this was me, I'm saying people are so frustrated because George W. Bush lied about the Iraq war and he got us into this war. And, you know, it's just amazing that anyone would vote for him after that misdirection and that sort of fraud against the public and abuse of their trust, and the credibility of the office. And he said, you know, actually this was right after he had been reelected. And this is why I was expressing, I'm so disappointed. I, mm -hmm. you know, we were all aghast that he got reelected. And he said, well, you know, to be fair, I think the voters knew what they were choosing here. <laughs> you know, I don't think you, he was essentially saying to me, I don't think you need to make a claim that they were fooled. It's sufficient to just recognize that they had the information about whether the war was predicated on true or false evidence. They still voted for him again, and they wanted him. And there, it, it's almost condescending to have to explain away people's, I think, bad decisions as being, you know, grossly misinformed or as if somehow they're infants who don't have... <laughs> Agency. Yeah. Like, how about lots of people are capable of making terrible choices, even if they're smart? You know, maybe some of the smartest people are susceptible to making even worse choices. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> but whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. So do you think that when, when you kind of relate that uh, to Trump and the world we live in today, do you think that we – there is truth and there is 
not truth, right? And and I think I've spent time in the South in the last year or so uh, for some reporting I've been doing and, and with a lot of Trump, I mean, a lot of tr- Trump voters. And, um, and what's so fascinating is you watch Fox News and there is a regurgitation of the th- the things you see on Fox News. So I got back from from a trip recently, and I said, you know what, I'm going to watch some of these clips that these folks are talking about to to see what it is. And it is it's clear bullshit. It is just 100 percent bullshit. It's it's that it's that Trump is a religious man who loves Jesus and the Bible. It's that he he's been a great businessman his entire life. There's just a long list of things, and it's it's very clever the way they do it. There's there if you watch Fox and Friends in the morning, for example, uh, they they they'll they'll push back with an answer. They'll be like, "Well, wait a second. Da 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 da," and you're like, "You just told him what to say," and it was and you made it seem like you were disagreeing with them. And I I guess the question is is you know. If you go back to to the early days of newspapers, there was a philosophy between these two philosophers, who um, who were very in- instrumental in creating the media world we live in today. And one of them said uh, that the public is essentially stupid for the most part. The majority of people are, are are not that smart, and that that it is our job as journalists to tell them what is important and what's and what to think about and. Uh, and what to read about and to inform them and not for them to ask questions but of uh, us to explain it to them. The other point of view was, well, if that's the public, if that's the majority, then they know the things that they want to know about and they should be telling the journalists what to report essentially as as a group. And essentially the former uh, was the one that won out. And what the internet has done is it's kind of changed it to the latter, right? Where it's no longer the editor of a newspaper is deciding what is on the front page every single day. It's being, it's being decided by Twitter and social media and, and forums and YouTube and you name it. And, and I think both of them are kind of wrong, honestly. Um, and the question I guess I have is like, don't, do you think that we have a responsibility to let these people who voted for Bush and Trump and even a bunch of Democrats that I am not fans of, like Biden, uh, to let them know the truth, or is the, is that is it that we just have to kind of let it play itself out? Well, I think what you're getting at is the extent to which capitalism, consumerism, to go back to our earlier conversation, has eaten everything in the society. Yeah, and the internet connectivity rapid information transfer has just facilitated that capture by capitalism of everything, including obviously journalism and information. And so, you know, capitalism explains all of this. It it explains a society in which people consume the news that they are most interested in consuming. And the vast majority of people are interested in consuming news that confirm what they already believe. How does capitalism explain it? Well, because the consumer is getting what they want. I mean, I often think capitalism should be called consumerism. I mean, the reason it's called capitalism is because the owners of capital expropriate value in a Marxist construct. But really, the mechanism that drives it, the way I think about investing in businesses, is that the rule in this system is that what consumers want happens. Mm-hmm. And whoever is able to give them what they want wins. And, you know, 
that's sort of all you need to know to understand Jeff Bezos as one example. And, and he explicitly describes this. I mean, if you ever hear him going back to the beginning of Amazon, talk about how they do what they do, it's customer obsession. And I think he really means that. And I don't think he's saying that to sound altruistic in some way. I think he understands how capitalism works, which is if a business is obsessed with its customers and goes to great pains to understand exactly what they want and to super serve them that, those consumers give them money. And that's what dictates cash flows in the economy. So it's no accident the Roger Ailes of the world who figured this out made a fortune off of it and built empires around it. And, you know, uh, I think the question is what countervailing force can resist the excesses that that inevitably produces? So if you're saying that the that, that it's capitalism that is deciding this, which I completely 1,000% agree with, it's very clear to me when I look at someone like Jeff Bezos and how much money he has that capitalism doesn't work. You, Jeff Bezos has got the same amount of money as the poorest 40, 50 million people in the United States. Um, the top four richest people in the world have the same amount of money as the bottom 3.6 billion that to me says that capitalism, consumerism, whatever you want to call it, is is broken. Do you th if you, you know, there's this amazing book I read years ago uh, by Alan Lightman, who's an, an author I've referenced before on the podcast, but he um, it's called Einstein's Dreams, and it's it's a fictional book about um, uh, what all these different worlds that Einstein would have dreamt about while he was developing the theory of relativity and um, and it's time is different in all of them and so in one world you um, based on how close you are to the earth uh, it, it's as it's spinning it moves quicker um, and you you age quicker the further away you are it ages slower so all the rich people live on these really tall stilts on the top of you know mountains and so on and they live hundreds of years and the and the poor people die sooner at the bottom of, the, of uh, by the ground there's another chapter where there's a spot in the earth where if uh, if you stand there uh, time stops and all these couples line up to be able to stand on this spot so that they can kiss and love and blah, 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 blah. So, but the reason I bring this up is because I'm curious, as someone who's thought about this a lot, the whole consumerism aspect of it and technology and, and capitalism and so on, if you could reconstruct the world in a new way, the society we live in, you know, people have tried it, Marxism and capitalism and blah, blah, blah. Is there a, is there a way you think that would work best? Well, I I don't know, obviously. <laughs> yes, I know, but, I mean, but I'm not I mean, saying, but hypothetically speaking, like, is there well, something? I, mean, I think you start by not being imprisoned by a paralyzed vision of any of these ideologies or organizational approaches. Meaning, you know, what capitalism looks like in America today is very different than what it looked like even in America 50 years ago. So, you know, whether you want to come up with a new name for it or just call it, you know, capitalism in 2019, who cares? But these are dynamic sort of operating systems that we're all agreeing to utilize. And what's very clear is that there can be innovation in forms of social organization, just like there can be innovation in any other kind of technology or idea. And what we, at a minimum, should, should do 
is always be seeking to fix what doesn't work about it. So, you know, again, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not like the choice is, is capitalism or socialism. Has anyone ever actually thrown a baby out with the bathwater, you think? That's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> we, we could try it after the podcast. I got a couple of babies. You have a couple of babies. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think th- this gets me to another tension in oh, you. Right. That I, I want to I dig it. into a little bit. Ring it. Which is, on the one hand, you are obviously drawn to the aesthetic, um, in at least two ways. You like good industrial design or at least some kind of industrial design. Um, you, your house is very tasteful. I'm sitting in it right now. It's beautifully done. I know you were intimately involved with the remodeling of it. So you care about how things look, how they feel, how they're designed. And you also care about stories. Oh, yes. And, and both the aesthetics and the stories are both touchstones of an artist. And yet, on the other hand... You have been, in various moments, a critical journalist, a pundit. How do you think of these two sides of your personality coexisting? And, and do you ever find them fighting with each other? That's a good question. <clears throat> so I actually went to art school. My life began as an artist. I studied painting, and um, uh, my goal was to be able to paint photorealistically, and I thought it was going to take a lifetime, and it turned out it took about six months, and, you know, just being anal and with a little paintbrush, you can you can do it. And, and I think that um, what I find so interesting is that some of the people who... Well, to go back to the aesthetics, right... I actually kind of see that as like a curse that you care about the way things look. It's, it's, it's great because we, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to admire pretty things and well-designed things. And I, you know, this black cup that I'm drinking a cup of coffee out of, but I, I like envy people that can, that cannot care about those things. Um, uh, and, but at the same time, like, if you don't care about those things, then you probably won't appreciate them in nature too. And so it, it is a, it's interesting. Um, I was reading a, a book about symmetry recently and um, about how we are such weird creatures that we, we are drawn to symmetry, but we're also drawn to asymmetry, right? And, and, we're, and there's no rhyme or reason to why. Uh, and it, you know, people, People have theorized, maybe you know from some of your research why, but but I always find that so fascinating that we that we like the fact that that uh, that certain plants and flowers have have specific shapes, and then we also like the fact that uh, that others are complete dramatic opposites of themselves, and the same with animals and so on, and um, and I think that the design and aesthetics and so on is is something that kind of it plagues me a little bit, honestly. But to go back to the other part of the question, we, we're we all storytellers, right? I know it's a bullshit thing that like brands say these days, like, I'm a storyteller. Yeah. But at the end of the day, that's, that's the thing that separates us, right? Um, that's, it's, it's, and that's, what we, that's why we gather around. That's why people are, have earbuds in right now listening to us talk. It's because they're listening to a story. And, and where what I've always tried to do with my stories is to offer kind of a moral lesson that I have been going through at that period of time. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. 
I want to switch gears a minute here. Yeah. So we only have a little bit of time left. And you and I have a different viewpoint on a topic that is actually kind of related to this in some respect because it all is. So I'm obsessed with – this is the thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Uh, you know where this is going, don't you? God? Not God. <laughs> Not God. The, the mystic force? But why we're here. Okay. And what's been really interesting to me – is over the past couple of years, I've had a lot of super-duper smart people on this podcast, uh, uh, way smarter than me, who have done research into, and it's all science-related. And the more, you would think that the more I hear from scientists um, and authors on these topics, that I would eventually be like, oh, like Fox News, right? Oh, I get it. That makes sense. That's the way it is. But the more I've heard from these folks the more I believe that there is a reason that we're here. And a lot of them say there isn't, and there's just, it's just chance. And so the question I have for you, and I can answer I can explain why in a minute, but the question I have for you is, you don't seem to think it's important if there is a reason or there isn't, right? Um, more or less. How? Well, I would argue that why in this context, isn't a question that science can answer. You know, to ask why we're here is to ask about meaning, and I would argue that we create meaning. It's not out there to be discovered. And uh, to that extent, any story we tell ourselves and each other about why we're here is a creative act, and that's fine. And I'm, I'm not opposed to people creating explanations or narratives that give a sense of purpose and uh, value to their lives. But I am suspicious of the idea that there is a single why that would ever satisfy everyone. And, you know, what's, what is more amenable to science is how did we get here? And, you know, I think when, when you and... Uh, your wife were over at our house for dinner with uh, Francis Arnold, who won the Nobel Prize this past year. Um, good name drop. Good name drop. <laughs> well, we, we didn't win the Nobel Prize, but we, we did convince her to come over for dinner with our friends, uh, the Biltons, as bait. And um, she said to you guys, basically, you know, the, the, the spooky thing is that it's all DNA, that, that all known life in the universe has as its organizing code, DNA, that there's this single language through which information is being passed over time through all of these different forms of organization, through bugs and people and microbes and cities and companies. And at the end of the day, that DNA is doing something. There's, there's information being produced, or at least there's information being transferred from one form to another. And we're a part of that. In some sense, we're being used by whatever that force is, not necessarily in a volitional way, but it's happening and we're caught up in it and we can't escape it. And that is a, that is a sort of mystical story that is absolutely rooted in known observations and it's really freaky 
okay, so I don't need more than that. In other words, that is weird enough for me. But so if you look at the like, let's you're you're probably big on statistics and numbers, right? Am I right there? Sure, sure. Okay, so if you look like at the numbers, right? For me, this is the part that makes me feel like there's something to all this, and maybe I'm sure maybe we can never answer the question why. But as a journalist, my job is to ask why, and I kind of get a little obsessive with it. Um, but, and I'm sure it's not just journalists that ask this question, by the way. But when you look at like the numbers, so for example, eh, the Earth spins at 1,036 miles per hour, right? Um, well, that's that's only that's because of thetans. What's that? That's because of thetans. What do you mean? Well, let's talk about it later. Okay, we'll talk about it later. But, but if you slowed the Earth down, you might just float off. Or if you sped it up, you would not be able to get up from this chair forever. And if you look at the if you look at the numbers, of, that's just one one number, for example. If you look at the the all the you know black matter they're finding in the universe now, right? Uh, that the that and the and the statistics of like if you look at the numbers that if it didn't exist the universe would collapse in on itself and if there were more of it it would just expand too quickly and we wouldn't be here all of these things like for example there are a billion billion galaxies in the universe and each galaxy has a billion billion stars and the chance of of like us being here amid that it's all it all is like it just all worked out and the and to think about the reality that like, oh, it just happened by chance and we're just here floating on a little blue dot, to me just seems ludicrous. It seems like... Well, I mean, I just don't know where else you would find any explanation. I mean, let's say it did happen entirely randomly yeah, as a consequence of a very weird history. Then whoever those fortunate organisms were who could talk about it and do podcasts and all this would imaginably be asking themselves, why us? How, how did we get here? Why did I win the lottery? Or why did I, you know, get cursed, depending on how you're feeling that day? And I don't know that they would have any satisfying answer. I mean, if we had, if we had, you know, if we had a God's eye view and we watched the whole thing go down, if we watched that whole history unfold and there were just these group of people there, you know, it would almost be funny for us to hear them saying, <laughs> why are we here? And, you know, the answer would just be, well, that's what happened. I, I guess the part of the, the, the reason that I, I... I mean, why do you have two kids? I don't know. Like, it happened. It, you know, I, I mean, you can, you can explain what happened before that. But in some sense, I, I mean, I said to a friend once, you know, why did something happen? Well, the, the explanation is literally everything that happened before. Yeah, that's what um, someone I interviewed said once, too. Who's that guy who should meet this person? Uh, it was, um, uh, I'm not forgetting his name. Uh, he was a big TV guy. Um, I, will, I will remember it by the end of this <laughs> okay. podcast. Uh, Norman Lear. Um, oh. Yeah, Norman Lear that's said, I, I had asked, he was talking about uh, the war and being in World War II and in a fighter jet and, and shooting his gun and how... And he, how angry he felt at the the Nazis and this, that, and the other. And I said to him, like, after killing all those people, do you like think about, you know, does it make you think about why we're here, or whatever? And he looked at me and he said, every single thing that happened in the universe to this date is brought you and me together, sitting across from each other right now. That's why we're here, um, which is a good answer. Uh, no, but I, I, I guess 
it, the reason that I always come back to it is because I think about the bad things that happen and the people that are bad and do bad things. And that, like, for example, um, the, I've done a little reporting on the NRA recently, right? And, uh, and the guy who, one of the guys who came up with a lot of the advertising campaigns, the, you know, we are the NRA and like a lot of the really, the, the slogans and whatnot, um, he recently died of a heart attack. Um, his last name was McQueen, Agnes McQueen. Not a good guy, you know. Um, uh, uh, profited heavily off of a lot of bad things that he did. Um, and he died peacefully from a heart attack. And I look at that and I think to myself, like, there was no justice there. Like, why did that happen? And and I think that, and I just wonder, like, is there, is there a reason or no? And that's what makes me ask that question all the time. Well, I guess I would turn it back on you and, and say, you know, even it, hypothetically, what could a satisfying explanation look like? What form could it take that would lead you to go, okay, I'm happy, satisfied. That's, that's what I've always been wanting someone to tell me. What could a, I don't know what a, I think my puny little brain is not capable of coming up with one. I would love for someone to tell me and explain it to me. But I think that. Um, you know, it's interesting. I read, um, uh, after a few podcasts ago, Krista, my wife gave me C.S. Lewis, some of C.S. Lewis's books, uh, on Christianity and so on and so forth. And he talks about, um, how in his theory, uh, and I didn't agree with everything, but very clever in the way he thought about things. He said, you know, we as humans arrive here, um, this is going back to God now, but we r- arrive here and we feel thirst. That is because our bodies want water, right? We feel hunger because our bodies want to be fed. We feel a yearning to connect because our we need that. It's, it's, it's like we don't come with instructions. We absolutely come with instructions, right? We cry so that we can communicate and so on. And he said, we question if God exists because God does exist. And... I thought that that was, it was kind of an interesting way of looking at it, is that we are designed to question this thing. The question is, are we designed to find an answer? Well, that's, that's a good question, uh, which we will not answer. Which will not answer, although I will say a couple of weeks ago. You came close? Uh, no, I didn't come close, but, but a guest did, um, Bill Nye the Science Guy. Yeah, what did he, he was on. He was pretty smart and pretty brilliant. I mean, he's a very smart guy. Yeah. He said, um, he said that if you, and I've heard this before, but he articulated it in such a, such a simple way that I understood it. Uh, he said that, you know, when you look at what the stars are made of and you look at what we're made of and what everything is made of, um, we're all made of the same stuff. And so because we are questioning our existence in the universe, because we are made of what the universe is made of, we are the universe questioning why it's here. Sure. Which I thought well, was... I mean, that, that's tautological. And then I read another book right <laughs> afterwards about consciousness yeah. and about how there's a theory, which I'm sure you know about, that every single thing on... It's like the phi... Yeah, everything yeah. has consciousness, sure. like from a dog to a sure. human to a rock, and that we think we're the only ones with it, but right. really the rock has some form of consciousness, and there's like scientific evidence to prove that that's possible, and then that sent me down a whole other well, path. Well, I, I look at a lot of this through the lens of information theory, and the idea that the sort of most fundamental 
stuff that we're aware of. Actually, what's, let me put it differently. There's the stuff in the universe, and then there's the relationships between that stuff. And what I've been thinking lately is that all the most interesting things are the invisible things. It's the relationships between people that are interesting. In, you know, we were talking about capitalism. What is capitalism? Well, it's just a set of behaviors that a bunch of people are collectively engaging in. It, you can't hold on to capitalism. It only exists when performed by a huge group of people or even a small group of people. And information is a way of conceptualizing the relationships between things, between matter and the universe, and then the ability for that set of relationships to mutate and transmutate into other forms of the same thing. And, you know, if you go and you read the Claude Shannon paper that sort of jump-started information theory and, and all of computing, the amazing thing that he talks about is how, how, do, you, how do you take essentially an idea um, and then turn that into electrons and then the same idea comes out the other side? You know, how do you go from what, you know, how, how do I have an idea, hmm. turn it into words which flutter the air in between you and me, which reverberate this cone in your ear, these little hair cells in your ear, and then tingle your neurons and you come out with something that's kind of similar to what was in my head. There, there's this constant exchange of information that is agnostic to the substrate. It's agnostic to the material that is its vehicle. And all of that information is invisible. And so to me, the, 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 and, and the same with DNA. DNA is just a way of encoding information, just like ones and zeros. The magic's not in the A, C, T, and G, or the one and the zero. It's in the way they're put together. You know, the music's not in the fact that this piano has a bunch of keys that can make different frequencies. It's in the order of the notes and how quickly you play them and which ones you play at the same time. And so all of the most interesting, exciting, beautiful things that I'm aware of in the universe are these invisible things that have to do with structure of information, irrespective of what form it takes. And, you know, that set of ideas, that, that sum total of information that's been percolating through all of these different media from the beginning of the universe is the closest thing to a god that I can imagine. It, there, it's invisible, it's in everything, and it can take multiple different forms. And the cool thing is that we have some agency over where some of it goes. And, you know, that small sliver of power that we have in our clutch is kind of the only thing worth talking about because it's the only thing we can do. And it's the only thing we, we can actually work with. All the other information that's being passed around the universe you know, without more expansive technologies, we have no control over. And this ability to Bill Nye's point for the information that we create and manipulate through conscious interaction, reflection, introspection, communication, and then actuate on the rest of the world is our footprint in the universe. And, 
having some agency again over where those footprints are placed and what they look like, you know, is, is to me the important question. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, listen, <laughs> no, it's true. It's, I, I, is I, that satisfying? It's satisfying to me. I think that, well, that's um, pretty weird, right? Uh, it all, it's all weird. The thing that I've always found. So the, the best part of all this is that people who are religious believe in something that can never be proven. Right. Right. Uh, they believe in an idea that no matter what you do, you will never be able to prove that it exists, really. You can say there's miracles and, like, you know, things like that. But the, rea- the reality is, unless you can repeat the miracle, like, you, it, it is not a, that's an anomaly, not a statistic, right? And science, people in science look at the people who are religious and say, oh, well, you can't prove it. Science is going to prove it, that, that it doesn't exist or, or that, that religion doesn't exist and that we're just these kind of things blobbing around on a bl- little blue planet in the middle of nowhere. And if when you get to the to quantum mechanics and you get to the many world theories um, around uh, um, the fact that there are there's a multiverse where there's a billion 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 different versions of this universe itself, not just the the Milky Way, but like literally the universe, there are a billion different versions, billions of different versions of that. Even when science proves that that is real, there is. In, it is impossible. It's possible that we will be able to one day travel to the stars and to other planets and this, that, and the other. It is impossible that we will ever be able to get to another universe. And so, therefore, when science answers all the questions in this universe, the one question it won't be able to answer, we will just have to trust that it's real. So, in the same respect, they, scientists will be forced to believe in something that there's no way to prove it is real in the same way that people who are religious do today. Well, I mean, I think if you look at the world's religions, their value is much more in giving us ideas about how to live yep. practically, day-to-day, than it is about answering questions that ultimately are completely irrelevant to how each of us chooses to live on a daily basis. And... I acknowledge that there are these set of questions that are essentially unanswerable. And you can go to religion to find an answer to them, or you can go to science and it won't give you an answer to them. But I I just don't crave those answers that much because they're genuinely irrelevant to all the hard stuff I've got to deal with. Like which dining chairs to get. Like which dining chairs to get. I mean, you know, and my conclusion is that God was in Pierre Paul Anne's studio in 1962 when he designed the uh, Ligne, when she designed the Ligne Rosette TV chair, as it's called, the the one we chose. Yeah. Very comfortable. You've sat in it. Yeah. Very comfortable. Very comfortable chair. Uh, Da, this has been fantastic. Any last words? Well, I think what you said before we pressed record was that what people want with this podcast is to have essentially been placed in the middle seat on an airplane between two friends who are having a a really weird conversation. And I think we've delivered. I think we've delivered, although I don't think anyone's still listening. I think that's probably true. (laughs) But if they are, they're probably going to stalk you. (laughs) DA, this has been amazing. Thanks for coming. Thanks for taking over the podcast. I'm going to make you read the thank you now. Okay. All right, DA, hit it. 
Well, D.A. Wallach here, and I want to thank my guest, Nick Bilton. I'm going to end this with my best radio voice, Nick. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You've got a really thanks great radio voice. Thanks to the voice. folks, thank you, at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors, Lightstream, Fiverr, and BetterHelp. Please support them the way they support this podcast. I'll see you next week. I feel like whoever is still listening, it's like the one person in the theater that's waiting to see if their name shows up. (laughs) Well, hi, Todd. (laughs) Hi, Todd. Todd, this one's for you. See you next week, Todd. (laughs) And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake at The New Yorker, to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.